and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Roz Taylor. Mission largely accomplished. For now. Over the years, I've talked to many people on The Bunker and our sister podcast, Oh God, What Now?, about Boris Johnson. His ego, his will to power, his amorality, as many people see it. We were trying to understand how a flawed individual rose so high and speculating about what would eventually bring him down. Well, now he is down. And one of the people who followed his downfall most closely was FT journalist Sebastian Payne, who joins me today to talk about his book, The Fall of Boris Johnson, The Full Story. Sebastian, welcome to The Bunker. Thank you very much for having me. So he won't go down as Britain's best prime minister, I think we can agree. Uh, I don't think it's worst either. (laughs) But he may go down as one of the most compelling like Margaret Thatcher, a source of endless fascination, even among those who despised him. And Sebastian, your book is full of ironies. At one point, you quote someone saying, Boris doesn't even like parties. And I found myself doing a double take because the most charismatic politician of his generation, the one who worked a room like no one else, and he doesn't even like parties, parties that led in large part to his downfall. Was it Partygate that did for Boris Johnson, or is it more complicated than that? Well, I think the story I tell throughout the book is of three Ps that brought down Boris Johnson. First of all is Owen Patterson, who's the former disgraced environment secretary who had the whole lobbying scandal. And I think that was the first P that played a big role. Uh, The second P was um, Partygate. And then the final P is Chris Pincher, the former deputy chief whip who was embroiled in sexual harassment allegations that were grossly mishandled by Downing Street. So those are the three kind of themes that go throughout the book that I examine in some detail. But to your earlier point about parties, Boris Johnson is a is a character full of contradictions that, as you said, very charismatic. You know, someone who worked with him said to me, he, he's a man incapable of standing in front of a group of people without giving a speech. But he doesn't actually like going to parties. I've seen him at various drinks receptions in Downing Street for political journalists. And he's always very awkward. And the people that I interviewed who know him very well say that he'd be far happier sitting at home with a big glass of red wine and a book and just reading or being with his family. The idea that he likes going to all these big gatherings and schmoozing them, I think is probably not true. And I've also seen... Boris Johnson at various spectator summer parties where I used to work. And again, really not his natural environment. So, and one thing is, if you read the other more personal biographies of Boris Johnson, he is quite a shy person that he's very good if he's doing that kind of professional speech giving but he's not someone who is at ease in a social situation but to your point about him being consequential as well I think that is true that for me he's certainly the most consequential British Prime Minister since Tony Blair and given Brexit uh, how he reshaped the country's politics and how he's reshaped the Conservative Party but obviously for him it's always not the ending he wanted that he dreamed of having a decade in power when I interviewed him for my first book Broken Heartlands he actually talked to me about that about a decade-long project to reshape the country and that didn't happen he only got three years and that's due to how he ran the government but also his own personal flaws. How do you think he would have reshaped the country if he'd had a decade in power? Well, first of all, I think the levelling up agenda to tackle regional inequality, that was the closest thing to a raison d'etre that Boris Johnson had, that he wanted to you know, have that big focus on trying to devolve power, spend more money locally to improve those parts of the country that voted for Brexit. And there was that huge white paper that came out um, at the beginning of 
of I think it was this year it was either I think it was actually the beginning of this year that set out that vision and it was very curious looking at the Labour Party's commission on the future of the UK this week it's almost identical to what Boris Johnson wanted to do so you're in this weird situation where even though Johnson has gone his domestic politics are actually quite transposed onto where the Tory party is now but also where the Labour Party is going with regards to Brexit he probably obviously wants to continue pushing down that pretty tough approach with the EU not looking to compromise or try and smooth trade at all. And I think continue to reshape the Tory party, going taking it more in a direction uh, that would have appealed to Brexit votes, moving it away from the prosperous South, whether that could have been electorally viable in 2024, the next election, is a very unclear question. But I think, you know, he's a politician who likes tangible things. He likes to build things, you know, whether it's new buses or railways or roads or bridges and Earlier in his career, when he left journalism for politics, he remarked to someone, they don't put up statues to journalists. And that speaks to what he wanted. And when I was researching the fall of Boris Johnson, someone told me when he was mayor of London, he only half jokingly talked about building a massive statue of himself on the M4. So when people landed at Heathrow Airport, they could really see who's in charge. And that speaks to the kind of physical imprint he wants to leave on the country. And I think after three years, there's probably not much of that uh, that he can look back on. It's slightly frightening, I think, an ego that large. I mean, the vast majority of us don't expect to have a statue put up to ourselves, and it's, you know, it becomes rarer and rarer as well for, for that to happen. It's extraordinary, isn't it, the extent of his self-belief? It is, although I think I'd say if you've met some other prime ministers, I think Tony Blair, for example, would be a man who would love to have a couple of statues of himself dotted around the country. <laughs> Margaret Thatcher has some statues, statue of her went up in Grantham. I think he gets egged quite frequently and they put it on a very high plinth. So that's the kind of person Boris Johnson fits into. And he's always seen himself as this kind of historical figure. And I think if you look at what happened to the Ukraine war, which I covered in the book, you know, Boris Johnson will be very fondly remembered within Ukraine. I was talking to an FT colleague who was there just last week. And they said that, you know, the way he's remembered in Kiev is completely different. They can't understand why they got rid of, why we got rid of this leader as they saw as a great wartime leader who was taking on Russia, who was at the forefront of the response there. Whereas in the UK, you know, Boris is as divisive as he's ever been. Some people absolutely love him and some people absolutely cannot stand him. And there's very little middle ground. And when I was writing this book, I did try and speak to that and try and acknowledge that there are mixed opinions on him, although very few people seem to have them. Some of us thought his friendship with Zelensky was for show, but you say it was genuine and he had a genuine rapport with him. Totally. I would really reject the for show thing entirely because Boris Johnson took huge risks and gambles by putting money and effort into the Ukraine war effort that very early on, uh, the Whitehall machine at the Ministry of Defence and the Foreign Office I report in, cha- in, the, in the chapter of the book were very reluctant to send arms to Ukraine because they were worried about poking the Russian bear, as it was described internally. And yet Boris Johnson saw a historical moment here. Now, if you were being cynical, you could say you could see it was a moment for him to play a, a big role in this. But I think also he did see the values that were at stake here in terms of liberal democracy, in terms of the kind of basic freedoms that any country should have for its sovereignty. So he did get stuck in on that. There are a couple of moments where the Ukraine thing did come to his rescue. I think during the no confidence vote in June this year, um, Zelensky put out a tweet saying he would be very sad to see Boris Johnson go. And I 
I think the timing of that is obviously very suspect. But I think generally speaking, it was all done out of the right intentions. And when I spoke to civil servants and diplomats across Whitehall about why they got so stuck in. They said, you know, unlike almost anything else Boris did when he was prime minister, he got stuck into this. He could see the maps in terms of, and he knew the places, sort of where the armies were, the key fault lines. It spoke to a very particular part of his brain that obviously he would think back to Churchill and the way he dealt with the Second World War. And he was clearly channeling those kind of instincts. He was able to do that for Ukraine, but he couldn't do it for the day-to-day domestic stuff that happened elsewhere in his government. I wanted to focus for a bit on the things that Johnson wants us to remember about him, because your book gives a good sense of that and how he justified and excused his mistakes to himself. And the vaccine programme was one of the things he was most proud of. In this narrative, he avoided locking Britain down last Christmas by making the right call on Omicron when others said, you should lock down, this is going to spread extremely quickly. Johnson clearly hated lockdowns, and that must have made most of his time in office deeply frustrating, wasn't it? Hugely. And I think you can see, you know, I I don't want to refer too much to Matt Hancock, but in his diaries, he does chart the push and pull that you can see that on the one hand, you've got the the sort of the scientific medical establishment saying you need to act now, you need to do more things immediately. And then you've got Boris Johnson's kind of constant innate desire for freedom, which if you saw in his Telegraph columns when he was editing The Spectator and the various speeches he's given, that's the kind of impulse that drives him in a way. And so the lockdown thing must be very frustrating. And if you go back to those early crucial days of the pandemic in March 2020, and I think it's those 10 days where everyone agrees the UK messed it up big time. I imagine that was exactly why he didn't go into lockdown, because he would have thought, I'm not doing this. This is not me. This is not my sort of thing. But then ultimately, he was forced into it. And obviously, we know those 10 days were really crucial in how the virus was transmitting. And then when it came to the the circuit breaker lockdown in November 2020, and then the next lockdown, the final lockdown in the early days of 2021, you know, again, it was all really pushed towards it. And I think it was maybe gut, it was maybe instinct or whatever it was. But when it came to Christmas last year, and the virus was spreading again, thanks to Omicron, there was a lot of push from various parts of the medical and scientific establishment saying, you've got to have a lockdown, this is crucial to save Christmas, or it's crucial to save the NHS. And Johnson pushed back against that. And if it had not been for Partygate, I actually think there would have been something of a reprieve, because obviously, the virus did spread, people did get ill, but the NHS didn't topple over. And for the first time in two years, we had a normal Christmas. So I think most people would have given him the credit for that. But obviously that never happened because as soon as January began, the drip drip of party leaks started all over. You say that he's got, or you suggest that he's got quite dodgy character judgment. Where did he get that wrong? I think if you look at Boris Johnson's Downing Street teams, and I know it's the old sort of maxim that, you know, you judge people by those they put around him. And I think that throughout Boris Johnson's three Downing Street teams of advisors and aides, he never really had the right people. In the Mark One of the Downing Street, you had the Dominic Cummings era, which was obviously, from his perspective, frighteningly effective in terms of quote unquote, getting Brexit done, winning the 2019 general election, then of course, all fell apart during the pandemic and everything that happened after that. Then the Mark II under Dan Rosenfeld sort of tried to keep the show on the road. But again, the people didn't really have the trust of Boris Johnson. They didn't have the nous to deal with the Partygate scandal. And then the Mark III of Downing Street 
completely failed when Boris Johnson was fined by the Met Police uh, and then had the no confidence vote and then had the Chris Pincher scandal. So the three P's kind of link into those three operations. And it just felt to me from my reporting, people were not giving him good advice. They were not being honest towards him and they didn't have his best interests at heart. And you can also transpose that onto the cabinet that he never really had, in my view, the good enough cabinet that could have been drawn from the Conservative Parliamentary Party that obviously, if you take Jeremy Hunt, who is currently the Chancellor, you know, he was on the back benches for the whole of Boris Johnson's time. And whatever you think about Jeremy Hunt's politics and what he's doing, he is very experienced. He's one of the most experienced cabinet ministers in the Conservative Party. And the fact he just sat there not doing anything was very odd. But one of the reasons why he didn't have a lot of talent in his cabinet is because he drove a number of people away, didn't he, when he was determined to show that he would go for a hard Brexit. Isn't that a sign of where he really began to go wrong, where he was prepared to dispose of people in order to get his way? You mean the 21 people who were um, who were scrapped out of the Tory party in September 2019, it was? Yeah, I think look, that was obviously a very difficult moment for Boris Johnson. People who do the more fuller look at his premiership will no doubt report the kind of angst he went through. You know, it wouldn't have been a happy moment for Boris Johnson to kick out Ken Clark, who he had great affection for and actually backed in the spectator for Tory party leader and Nicholas Soames, the grandson of Winston Churchill. I think that would not have been a good moment for him whatsoever. But, you know, he had a very clear aim, which was to go for getting Brexit done, to go for prorogation. And from his perspective, that paid off because they got Brexit done. They won the the big majority in the 2019 election. But I think in his kind of deepest heart, Boris Johnson always wanted a kind of reconciliation with the centre of the Conservative Party. And one of the things I write about in the fall of Boris Johnson is that they were looking at doing a reshuffle in the summer before things came off the rails with Chris Pincher and his aide had drawn up a plan of what that reshuffle would look like. They would have brought back some people like Sir Robert Buckland, who again is from the more centre of the Tory party. So he always had that kind of instinct, I would say. One of the things that other biographers of Boris Johnson have have charted is that, you know, when he was mayor of London, he was a much more liberal centrist Tory figure. Then he backed Brexit. And then when he became Tory party leader, he did so not on the back of the One Nation group and liberal people in the Tory party, but on the back of, you know, some of the most hardline Brexiters. And that always made this kind of uncomfortable governing sphere for him. And I don't know if he could ever really have got away from that. It's the will to power, isn't it? I mean, the will to power with Boris Johnson was so great that he was prepared to embrace you know, policies that he probably wouldn't have dreamt he would have embraced a few years before. And often you know, throw people overboard, hang them out to dry, however you might put it, in order to get his way. But that did burn bridges, didn't it? Could he still make a comeback, do you think? I mean, despite the setback in the leadership contest, which is really not that long ago, although it seems eons in Westminster time. He is standing again as an MP, as far as we know. Well, I think, obviously, this is the question everybody asks. And he did make that attempted brief comeback when Liz Truss fell and he flew back from the Caribbean to try and rally support. I think that was a very telling moment because he obviously came back and thought he might be walking into open arms in terms of support from the number of his base. But he just didn't quite... 
he didn't quite have the the levels needed to make a real fist of it. That you know, he said he had 102 names. Who knows if he ever actually had those 102 names? But I think fundamentally, Rishi Sunak had all the momentum, and having that kind of sort of death match of Sunak versus Johnson would have been very damaging for the Tory Party itself. And I think Johnson, above all else, he still has a lot of affection for the Tory Party, and I think he knew if he had done that, actually. It could have come off the rails really quickly and made things hugely difficult. So at that point, he, you know, I think he decided that it was best to let this one lie. But for me, that was the best moment he would have had to come back. Because if you think about where Tory politics are going, is going now, you know, the next election is due to be in late 2024, based on where the Conservative Party's thinking is at the moment. And at that point, it's almost certainly going to be Rishi Sunak unless something unexpected happens. But it really feels to me as if the Tory party is bedding down into having the election at that moment. So in that case, it's going to be Rishi Sunak either wins it and Boris Johnson's not coming back and Rishi Sunak doesn't win it, as the polls would suggest at the moment. And then what happens? Well, is Boris Johnson wanting to do the hard slog of five years in opposition? Maybe he will. Maybe he'll try. But I also think in some respects, the caravan might have moved on because people draw the parallel with Winston Churchill um, or Howard Wilson, who were both ejected from number 10 and came back. But the crucial difference is they were both party leaders. They both never gave up the the leadership of their respective parties and were leaders of the opposition. And I just think the fact that Boris Johnson was kicked out as leader makes it increasingly difficult. And you mentioned that he's going to keep his seat at the next election. But the fact is, um, it may well be that he loses it. You know, he's got a very small majority there. What do you think he will do with the rest of his life, assuming that he isn't back as Tory leader at some point? Look, I think Boris Johnson will never be leaving us alone. He will always be in the debate. He will always be throwing rocks over the fence. And you see he's been doing that already, talking about the summer madness that led to the end of his uh, his premiership. But I think, yeah, he will always be here, there and everywhere. And he's not gone back to newspaper writing um, but I think he may well do that. He will obviously do speeches and policy interventions, will have his memoirs. He will always be in the debate. He's someone who craves the limelight. So even if he's not party leader, he could do that. And of course, he could, you know, if the Conservatives do return to power in, say, five years or even 10 years, I'm sure he would harbour a return to cabinet as potentially foreign secretary. I can imagine his memoirs being probably the most readable set of political memoirs. Certainly. I mean, I mean I've read far too many political memoirs over the years, and most of them are quite dry things where they're trying to carefully cover every decision made in office. Boris Johnson will certainly not be doing that. Lastly, what do you think his biggest regret will be? I think his biggest regret will just simply be the fact that it ended like he did. And he will always blame Tory MPs. They've given him the sort of perfect narrative, which is that he had this mandate of 14 million people from the country and they elected him. And it was only these MPs who took fright and thought that that he was a busted flush. And he will always argue that was not the case. And I think fundamentally, people will take different views on that. And by the end of it, you know, he was unpopular. MPs had had enough. They did want him out and they couldn't see a way forward. So his view on it will be as if they just held their nerve, kept things together. Then in fact, you know, he could have got through it and then gone on to done all the great and glorious things he had in his front vision. But history will be the judge of that one. I think his memoirs and all the speeches and interventions we'll hear will play on that theme. Cincinnati's returning to his plough. Exactly. Sebastian, thanks so much for joining us. 
Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. The Fall of Boris Johnson, the full story by Sebastian Payne is out now and published by Macmillan. If you enjoyed today's bunker, do think about supporting us. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast and you can do so. I'm Ros Taylor and thanks for listening. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ros Taylor. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, with additional production from Jack Gerbertson, Kasia Tomashevich, and me, Alex Reese. Our marketing manager was Gina Richard. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Hold up. 